Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. This week, we'll be talking about the natural world, the earth, climate change. I mean, they're not cheery topics, are they, Lucy? They're not. I think we're going to try and look at kind of both sides of the coin in the sense of we have to look clearly at the problems that are facing us, the enormous scale of the problems that are facing the environment. But we're also celebrating the earth and roses and birds and celebrating the wonderful side of it, I guess. So it's a bit of both, I think. You talked with Thea to David Wallace-Wells. This is last year in October that we're looking back to. Of course, I mean, the summer thus far has been a really extraordinary one. I mean, you know, huge heat waves, absolute extreme weather emergencies throughout the world. I mean, when you look back to that conversation, I'm sure you knew at the time it was prescient, but it's sort of brought home, isn't it? It is, yeah, because it's been record-breaking, hasn't it, already this Mm. year? Not in a good way, none of it in a good way. And you can see it. And I know that we like to talk about our gardens, and it gives us great, great pleasure, and I hope others as well, but you can see it even in our gardens. My garden this year looks completely different, I think, than it has other years. Everything's come early. Everything's Mm. yellow. A lot of it is dying, frankly. And that's because we've had no water and 40 degree heat. And, you know, that's the smallest possible microcosm of what's happening, I think, generally. But there are still things we can do about it. Well, let's listen to David Wallace-Wells 
exploring that further? Well, unless you haven't seen or heard any news at all over the past couple of weeks, you will know that COP26 is taking place in Glasgow from this weekend, where around 200 of the countries of the world will try to address the climate crisis, where it stands, what to do about it. This sounds oddly like quite a straightforward thing to do. We know what the problems are, though of course they are many. We just need to sort them out like humans do with our ingenuity, our technology and our behaviours. But of course, it is not at all straightforward. It has been hard enough convincing everyone that climate change even exists, let alone agreeing on what to do about it. And it's something that we collectively find very difficult to look at head on. In the past couple of years, there's been a shift in realization driven by many people, the implacable Greta Thunberg, for instance, and Extinction Rebellion here in the UK. One of the writers in the US who got people to sit up and take notice is David Wallace Wells with his essay, later a book, The Uninhabitable Earth. He's written for us this week on four new books on the climate crisis and approaches to it. And we're delighted that he's joining us today to talk us through some of this. David, many thanks for coming. My pleasure. It's great to be here. So all the books you've reviewed, they come at this from very different angles, don't they? From the sort of almost shockingly practical to the meditative. You started with The Latter Approach, which is a book of essays edited by Rupert Reed, who's an Extinction Rebellion spokesperson, and Jem Bendel, an activist, and the book's called Deep Adaptation. So this is about how politically and psychologically we might react and adapt to climate disruption. Is that right? Yeah, and it's something that I've been thinking about, certainly since I wrote my book and even going back further than that, which is to say, you know, we've spent a fair amount of time and attention on um, what the science tells us to expect and what we need to do to avert the worst case scenarios and all of that sort of technocratic and scientific language. Um, and I think we've spent relatively less amount of time thinking about all of the ways beyond the direct climate impacts, our lives will be affected if the world is indeed transformed as much as, you know, we expect it to, because we're moving so much more slowly than we should be. And that means um, there are many changes, I think, afoot and coming down the, down the pike beyond what we can read about in nature and science. Um, and I think, you know, this book reckons with a somewhat bleaker picture of, um, really dramatic climate change than I personally expect to unfold. But I think it raises an enormous amount of really important questions about not just, you know, are we going to build some seawalls, but what is it going to mean for our geopolitics to be reckoning with, you know, um, many more climate migrants? What is it, um, what, what will it mean for our relationship to nature to come to terms with the fact that, you know, the world's tropical forests may soon begin emitting more carbon than they absorb, therefore sort of going from being our climate friend, um, helping us in the fight against temperature rise to being um, to sort of fighting on the other side against us. Um, you know, what will it mean for those communities located in particular parts of the world that have spent centuries um, cultivating food in very particular ways to have to abandon all of those, um, all of those practices and make new cultures for themselves? I have uh, my wife's family is from Sicily. We were just spent there for a little bit in the summer and her family farm, they're totally redoing their entire crop cycle, um, moving away from, you know, classic Mediterranean uh, crops and basically turning themselves into a North African farm, which may not sound all that dramatic. And in the grand scheme of things, you know, isn't all that dramatic. But when you think about it as unfolding, at, you know, 
in every family, in every community, in every town, in every nation of the world, it represents a quite profound transformation, even putting aside the terrifying threat of you know, wildfire and, and hurricane and um, all the rest of it. And beyond all that, we have to try to develop, cultivate, um, engineer a new form of politics that can allow us to live somewhat comfortably in a world defined by these, um, what looks to us at the outset, at least, to be quite, quite brutal impacts. And given how slowly we're moving to even respond to the crisis and, and reduce our emissions today, um, I think we're really, we're really far behind on that quite important project too. And so does the book, you say it's also quite meditative. Does it say what we should do or what we might do? Or does it just say, let's, let's have, sit and think about how this will affect us as a society. And as you say, and psychologically, um, not just, you know, what are we going to, what practical steps are we going to take? Yeah, it's, it's, um, there's, there's some threads of practical consideration, um, woven through, but I think it's much more, um, you know, it's a, a group of essays, not just written by, um, by Rupert Reed and Jim Bendel, um, but a number of other people. Um, and altogether they amount to a reflection on the, on the big question of just what, what could make a rewarding, fulfilling, um, life, what could be a just human response and reckoning with, um, response to and reckoning with um, a world that's been deformed by, by, this, by this saga that we're all um, already living through today, but we'll be living through in, in probably much more dramatic ways in the decades ahead. There's the immense frustration and the rage, I suppose, of knowing that we, we know what needs to be done and we could do it, or most of it. You know, we have the technologies in many cases, and you point out that clean fuel and infrastructure is often cheaper than the old stuff, the fossil fuel stuff, but but we're still not doing it. Yeah, one of the most amazing facts that I've come across just over the last year, and I've been, you know, it's hard to follow this story without being both simultaneously completely dystopian and, and incredibly utopian because things are moving so quickly. Um, progress is being made so rapidly, and yet it is so woefully insufficient um, to the task at hand. But one of the most amazing facts that I've collected on the utopian side of the ledger is that 90% of the world's population now lives in places where dirty energy is more expensive than clean energy. That means that, you know, for all those people who ask me um, if this whole problem can be solved and with capitalism, we can table that and maybe talk about it later. Uh, but, you know, if capitalism were actually working today, if markets were actually working, we actually would have solved the problem. Like the, the problem is, um, you know, has to do with political econ economy, incumbency, you know, um, resistance to change, our status quo bias, and, and I think more and more, um, the disinterest in of people in the global north in the suffering um, and fate of people in the global south who are going to be hit much, much harder. Um, but the truth is that, you know, the if you are designing the future at a whiteboard today, um, you know, designing our future from scratch, it actually wouldn't be all that complicated to build a future that would be quite um, stable and comfortable climate-wise. It would be a little hotter probably because we couldn't make the changes as rapidly as science would, would like us to, but pretty quickly. And that means that um, we have to, on some level, look in the mirror for why, we, why we're in the pickle we're in now. We have the tools. We know what the work is. We're just not doing it. We need someone with the whiteboard, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose... Um there's a distinction to be made isn't there between climate alarmists who are trying to sort of wake people up and focus attention 
among which uh, presumably you count yourself, and doomsayers who just say, that's it, it's done, this is the end, nothing we can do, just lie down and give up. I think, you know, there are huge variations in rhetorical approach and emotional response, psychological response to the, um, to the crisis as people perceive it. Um, but my own instinct, and I, what I hope to communicate in the piece was that, you know, drawing hard lines between those groups and pretending that they represent um, you know, categorically distinct responses is a, a little misleading and counterproductive, which is to say, there are times when I feel it's quite hopeless. There are times when I feel quite optimistic. And in the hours when I'm feeling optimistic, I don't want to say to myself, that hour this morning when you were feeling really gloomy, that was unacceptable, that was defeatist, that was fatalistic. It's all a human response to a, yeah. a dramatic existential set of questions. And so you know, I look at, you know, for instance, Jim Bendel, he's not where I am. He thinks things are worse than I do. He thinks that we're farther along and 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 there's less hope for a recovery than I do. But I don't want to, I don't feel comfortable telling him that his response is illegitimate. But I also think from a, you know, intellectual, psychological perspective, we should be sympathetic to those who have slightly different responses and attitudes and perspectives than we do. It just isn't the case for instance, that even me, a, a sort of a climate alarmist in the global north, I'm going to have a more complacent perspective than an activist I spoke to a few weeks ago in Uganda, or one I spoke to a few weeks ago in India, who's living through much more intense um, impacts already today. And that doesn't mean that my perspective is dismissible from their point of view. It just means that everybody's going to be responding and reacting in their own way. Beyond all that, I do think that among the climate left, there has been for a generation or so a real concern that fear mongering would be counterproductive in the sense of pushing more and more people into you know what we've been talking about as the sort of doomist or or fatalist camp um and you know having been having lived somewhat in that world for a few years now i can't say that the number of people that that happens to is zero um but when i look at the globe as a whole I just still see so many more people who probably don't understand the scale of the crisis or the urgency of what's needed to be done than I see people who are on the brink of falling into, you know, total despair and fatalism. And in given that, I just think that, you know, the value of being alarming, there's still value there. You mentioned Greta Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion. It's bigger than them, but they're they're a good representation of that movement. I think it's hard to say that, you know, on net, we're worse off because those people are screaming at the tops of their lungs um, than we'd be if they weren't. That's not to say that their particular politics is for everybody or appeals to everybody. But the job of an activist is not to appeal to every single person on the planet, it's to change the landscape of political possibility. And I think all around the world, climate activists over the last few years, um, taking a much more urgent and alarmist tone than those who came before, have really, really made a dramatic difference there. And as a result, you know, the climate future, while still pretty grim by the standards of our grandparents and even um, our childhoods, uh, looks a lot more comfortable and habitable than it did just a few years ago. You have a really nice illustration of it in the piece. When you say you've met uh, both of the editors of that book, you've met Rupert Reed and Jen Bendel, and you have this lovely passage where you imagine placing yourself in a line of activists, like you said, you know, next to the activist in Uganda, you might look moderate, and then next to somebody else, you might look you might look more extreme. It's like the guy behind me is too cautious, but the next guy is, is too far out. But that doesn't matter if you're all on the same journey. 
Would it be fair to say that um, Andreas Malm, who wrote the next book, which is called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, he feels like a step further away from your position. Is that right? What, what does he advocate? Thinking about it cerebrally from an intellectual distance, there's almost nothing that I can argue with in his position, which is essentially um, the continued production and burning of fossil fuel is having a catastrophic effect on um, the livability of the planet, which means in the long term, it is raising temperature levels and producing all of these cascading climate impacts that so worry us. But even in the short term, we're talking about, you know, air pollution produced from the burning of fossil fuels that according to one estimate, at least are killing 8.7 million people a year, given that context. What is the responsible political relationship to that set of facts? And Andreas is a radical. He was a radical. He's been a radical for a long time. He's, he was radical before he wrote this book, How to Stop, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Um, but he wrote a book called How to Blow Up a Pipeline that is essentially an answer to that question, which is to say, okay, why don't we think about eco-terrorism? Why don't more of us who are really concerned about this crisis contemplate that possibility? He's not saying that you don't count as a climate activist unless you're willing to sabotage um, a pipeline. And he's not saying that everybody who wants to go to a climate strike or hear Greta speak needs to sign up for essentially a, a military revolutionary vanguard of which Andreas Malm is the leader or anything like that. But he's saying in a huge movement, numbering at least tens of millions and possibly hundreds of millions of people all around the globe as members, what's the argument against a few of those people who, are, who feel the, the demands of urgency the most intensely from taking some more dramatic action? I don't myself feel ready to do that, but I also can't really argue with his, <laughs> with his perspective, which is to say that the crisis is much more intense than our response really um, acknowledges. It, um, it happens in Kim Stanley Robinson's book, The Ministry for the Future, changes eventually agonizingly brought about by, by many, many means. It's, it's a sort of exploration of what might happen in the very near future. But there are acts of eco-terrorism in there, and it sounds very similar because it's not about endangering lives. It's about pinpointed actions. Now, I think sometimes lives are endangered, but, but, but it moves the dial. Um, and it, it made me think he's... Kim, Stanley Robinson, for instance, principally known as a science fiction writer, but now he's written some very powerful climate fiction novels. It's called cli-fi rather than sci-fi. And so have lots of other uh, very eminent, well-established writers. I'm thinking about Richard Powers. I mean, it's happening everywhere. It's happening in film and art and, you know, uh, in, in every area. Do you think that, that dealing with that could help in, in focusing attention? Well, I think to some degree it's likely to raise awareness and concern. It's a little bit ironic, given that a lot of our science fiction from generations past have you know, predicted a lot of the um, environmental catastrophes that we're seeing today. But I think it's a sign all told altogether that you know, no aspect of our lives, internal or external, you know, um, political or imaginative, is going to endure untouched by the force of warming, that this is too big, too all-touching, too all-encompassing, and too transformative a saga that we're living through, that every aspect of our lives down to our most intimate culture is going to reflect it to some degree or other. You mention in your piece a dispiriting gender pattern, uh, not to mention class and, and race, among the climate alarmists uh, that you discuss. 
So um, a book by Catherine Hayhoe, uh, which you also review, um, called Saving Us, stands out for both the gender of its author and the tone of its argument. Can you tell us a bit about that one? Yeah, Catherine Hayhoe is a climate scientist. Um, she's from Canada, but she teaches in Texas in the US. And she's become most known for leading, I guess you could call them communication workshops or sort of staging conversations um, with parts of the American public, which at least the people who live in places like I do in New York um, tend to dismiss as um, climate deniers and um, disinterested in, in, the, in the problem and the challenge of climate change. So um, she is an evangelical Christian and she manages to find ways to talk to people who are essentially excluded from the discourse of the environmental left and find sources and areas of commonality with them. One of the things that she finds is that if you navigate around a, a few preliminary um, obstacles, um, you know, avoid talking about it in a couple of very particular ways um, that almost everybody really is still concerned. You see that, you know, not just in her work, which is effectively anecdotal, but also um, in polling, which shows that, you know, especially if you're talking about the environment as an issue of clean air and clean water and, you know, safety from natural disaster, um, there's almost no one in any country in the world who's polled on those issues who, first of all, doesn't recognize the growing challenge represented by climate change, and secondly, doesn't want to do something to address it. And one of Catherine's valuable instincts is to try to get us outside of these rivalrous tribal boxes and think about our shared fate, both within the context of a single nation and the context of a, of a single planet. And the last book you've looked at for us is Geopolitics for the End Time, there's that phrase again, uh, by Bruno Massange, which you call a mind-bending tour of the world game post-COVID. What does that have to tell us about the climate crisis? He's a very interesting thinker who's, you know, just, I think, tends to throw a lot of thoughts at the wall, many of which are fascinating, um, not always in ways that fit perfectly together, but which are very provocative. Um, and it also just produces stuff at a, at a kind of an astonishing clip. So he his book is um, focused more on the question of the pandemic and our response to it, but it extends um, that experience as a sort of a case study in the changing dynamic of global politics and global political competition. You know, the nations who responded most effectively, especially in the year um, before vaccines in the pandemic, were those, especially in um, in Asia, who moved most quickly and most aggressively to clamp down on the pandemic without much concern about matters of, of liberty. And the truth is, in the West, we also responded in almost every country in ways that would have seemed to citizens a year or so ago, a year prior, to be quite trampling of liberty too. We just didn't do it quite quickly enough, which meant that the, um, the virus was able to spread and circulate and really take hold. What that tells us about the climate crisis, I think, is complicated. I think, um, you know, the lessons that we can draw on the pandemic are, are mixed. But I do think we would be foolish to disregard the simple fact that the world was totally upended, almost on a dime, out of concern for the safety of ourselves and our fellow humans. People who are hoping for dramatic change when it comes to the climate crisis should really take heart from that. You know, there, there are huge complications, you know, in the US and elsewhere, 
people fought against a lot of these um, policy restrictions. I think in many cases, they may have been even counterproductive. Um, certainly, you know, you can't really tell in the fog of war and we were doing the best that we could. But in any event, the most important lesson for me is that we moved rapidly. I mean, beyond the imagination of even the political leaders who ended up enacting some of these policies in say late February or even early March of 2020, we're not, we're saying that things like measures like these were not possible. And then within a few weeks time, we had enacted them and then would go on living under those new conditions to some degree for months and, um, and maybe even longer in some cases, mm. depending on how you want to count. It was not a happy experience, <laughs> um, but nevertheless, it just showed that our political systems and our social systems were hair trigger responsive. And many people fighting for that kind of response on climate would have lamented a year or two before how little was possible, how little change um, people were willing to make, how resistant to root and branch redesign or rethinking um, almost all of our systems of everyday life were. And I think the pandemic does illustrate, and Bruno does a, a good job of, of, of walking us through a lot of this, just how much of a right turn this experience was for almost all of us. Um, now, it was also a major missed opportunity. You know, there have been some estimates suggesting that if the world had spent just 10% of what it was, what it spent on pandemic relief over five years, we could have assured the rapid green transition of the entire world's energy systems. So we made some bad choices there when it comes to climate, and we had a huge opportunity, which is a missed opportunity. But at the social and political level, you know, just contemplating what is possible, I think that the pandemic crisis showed us that a lot more transformation is possible much more quickly than almost anyone alive in the sort of mature liberal democracies of um, the global north would have thought was possible. We all want to grasp onto hope, don't we? That's very much why um, Greta Thunberg said that Davos, as you know, in 2019, I think, I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day, and then I want you to act. Um, but on a, on a final note, you say you're an optimist. Can we can we end on that note, or should we end on that note rather? <laughs> well, you know, I think that big question of how to relate to this crisis on an emotional level is a really complicated one, and my my. My, my glib response when most people ask me if there's anything to be optimistic about is that, you know, this is not really a matter of like your mood. <laughs> if yes, you sure. It's not feeling. about how you feel. It's happening. <laughs> um, you know, I think two sets of facts are true at once. What we used to call business as usual outcomes, warming of levels of four or five degrees Celsius, um, emissions trajectories that included a, a return to coal and a dramatic um, expansion, in fact, of, of fossil fuel use over the course of the 21st century, um, real reluctance among the wealthy countries of the world towards a, an energy transition. Those futures, which seemed quite plausible just a couple years ago, they're not impossible, but they are much, much, much less likely. And what we now see as a likely future looks a lot better. And if we had a century, I'd actually be feeling pretty great <laughs> about how fast things were moving. Um, the problem is 
we don't have that time. Our timelines are really short and we've already effectively lost the opportunity to secure a climate future that our parents or grandparents would have recognized as comfortable. And indeed that would have been called comfortable by scientists as recently as 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. And that is really quite tragic. It means that our future will be defined by climate change, not just by what we do in response. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Response to it. Um, it'll be both, but it won't just be by the response. We had an opportunity to have a future in which we re- we re-engineered the world to deal with this crisis, and our future was the result of that re-engineering. It will be that, but it will also be the result of the climate impacts that we have failed to avoid. And that has been really about delay, which is a horrifying, maddening delay. The world really first um, started to wake up to this crisis in the late 1980s and the early 1990s. One landmark event in the U.S. at least was testimony before the Senate by a scientist named James Hansen, who's not just still alive, he's still alive and well and working. And at that point, when he testified in 1988, if we had started decarbonizing then, we would have had to decarbonize at a rate of about 1% or 2% per year to allow us to stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, which is the, the, the optimistic goal of the Paris Accords. Mm. We're now in 2020, and we need to get to net zero by 2050, which means we had more than 125 years to do this job. And now we have 30. We don't even really have 30. (laughs) Net zero, the net there is doing a lot of work. It means we're counting on somewhat speculative, what are called negative emissions or carbon removal technologies in the second half of the century to take huge amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere. I think we will be able to do that. I, I I, I trust that we will develop those technologies down the road. And if you take those out of the equation, we have to get to zero by about 2035. That is the result of the delay of the last 30 years, during which time more than half of all of the emissions that have ever been produced in the entire history of humanity have been produced. So we've done more damage to the planet since we knew all about it 
Since we knew all the risks, since we knew what we were doing, we've done more damage since then than we managed in all the millennia that came before. And that is ultimately to me, one of the scariest things about the situation we find ourselves in, which is it's easy to be optimistic about the fact that everyone now talks about the need to address this crisis. There is no climate denial anymore. But the experience of the last 30 years tells us that knowledge and anxiety and concern is insufficient. We need something much more powerful to actually move us into action. Now, I think we are starting to do that far too slowly, far too late. You know, we're, we're talking on the, on the eve of um, COP26 conference in Glasgow. COP26, there have been 25 previous conferences like this. Yes. Um, and if you look at the curve of emissions over that time, it's uninterrupted. It's not, you know, oh, it's flattening. It's not going down fast enough, but it's, it's just going straight up. Now, I think there are, like I say, I think there are reasons to think we're about to hit that peak and about to bend the curve down. But, you know, ultimately we haven't seen it yet. And that is really quite scary, which makes the bleak worldview, um, the really apocalyptic worldview of, of someone like um, Jim Bendel, for instance, um, again, seem, you know, ultimately not implausible. Um, you know, it's not exactly how I see the world, but it's a, it's a perfectly rational reading of, of the historical record and where we're heading to think that we're probably not going to do much at all. David Willis-Wells, thank you very much for joining us. Still to come on the show, how George Orwell felt about roses and the importance of birds to us humans. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. looking at the world through rose-tinted glasses, not because we're blindly optimistic, but because we are talking about roses. We have two pieces on this most symbolic of flowers in the paper this week, one talking about the cultural history, ranging from Christian iconography to the Surrealists to Virginia Woolf to the Reagan administration, all of whom have something to say about roses. The other piece is about Rebecca Solnit's book, Orwell's Roses, though we are warned that it isn't really about Orwell, nor is it really about roses. Happily for us, Margaret Drabble, who brilliantly reviewed it, is here to tell us what it is about. Margaret, many thanks for joining us. Thank you. 
Now, I know Rebecca Solnit, I think, says it isn't about Orwell or Roses, but there is a, I mean, it, it, there is a strong connection, isn't there? What's the story of the Roses of the, of the book's title? I think the story, the central story, is that Orwell planted some um, roses that he bought from Woolworths in his um, little allotment garden plot um, before the war and then was very proud of how they developed. And um, she has sort of woven a story out of that and spreading into all sorts of other roses. But the original roses were Orwell's, and her point is that Orwell, although portrayed as being a grumpy ideologue, in fact loved the natural world, was a good gardener, and they enjoyed his, his, his garden plot very much. Yeah, so he was. So it's that it's a slightly it's a different idea to the one that we're used to, isn't it? That the idea that there's a lovely quote about that he takes joy in in everyday things and in beauty and in the land and in animals and flowers. Yes, he he really did. I mean, he did also shoot quite a lot of animals, but then that was just what English people did. Even of um, people who liked animals did shoot them, and he killed a lot of snakes on Jura. But on the whole, he was in favour of the natural world and and um, enjoyed being outdoors and walking and rambling. Rebecca Solnit was a tremendous rambler, mm. but so was Orwell. He, he enjoyed walking too. And um, tell us about the importance of Woolworths, because you think that that was quite significant that he bought them at Woolworths. Yes, well, because Woolworths was such a demotic kind of mm. um, space. It was a place where... Everybody went for cheap things, and it was part of the childhood of anyone of my generation. You could get mixed sweets in a paper bag. I remember the mixed sweets. They were still going. Them. They oh, were still going yeah. when I was little. Yeah. No, it, it was a sort of magic emporium, and I think that um, I think that Orwell was particularly pleased that he bought these beautiful flowers and cherished them and looked after them and they had borne fruit like in a biblical parable they had done very well for him and he liked the feeling that any human um, being with a little tiny plot of land could do exactly the same as him he wasn't the kind of person who bought his um, flowers or roses from a posh nursery as some people I know do um, he just was happy with his Woolworths yes there is a kind of thing about roses and, and class, isn't there? Because you say also that he didn't think they were bourgeois. They can, weirdly, they can both be seen as, they can be looked down on and sort of seen as, as posh flowers, depending almost on what sort of roses you buy and, as you say, where you get them from. That's absolutely true. I do remember being once um, astounded by a woman friend of mine who asked me, where do you buy your rose shrubs? The answer was, I don't. But she obviously put people into categories of people who use, use very superior nurseries and people who just bought them at Woolworths, as it then was. And, and it was obviously a social grading in her eyes. Yes. And I, I was kind of dumbfounded by this question. I didn't know what to say. <laughs> and there's also the sorts of roses, aren't there? Because you talk about the, I think you mentioned at one point, you know, there's hybrid teas, which were very, very yes. popular at one point. And, but then there was a, there was a sort of, there was a movement against those, the, the kind of aristocratic um, Sackville West kind of went, went back to the old roses because they weren't keen on the hybrid teas. Well, I, I do know people who are very keen on the old roses and who send me photos of them. But not being a rose expert myself, 
I can't tell what sort of little messages they're sending out. I just say, <laughs> what a beautiful flower. But I know that there's a message with it and with its name. I occasionally walk in the uh, Rose Garden in Regent's Park, and I don't really understand the, 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 the differences between the different kinds of rose and what their social significance is. I have to say, I've, I'm just going to fess up here. I, I love the old roses. You do love well. the old roses. I do. My, and my parents love them, so I've got a couple from them. And yes. they've often got very, very beautiful names. They're often French. Josephine, they have very beautiful names. Yeah, I think that Josephine's, um, Napoleon's Josephine was a great breeder of roses. Yes. And I wonder if a lot of them come from there. I don't know enough about it. They probably do. My, my, my poet house sitter was very, very keen on, on, on roses and he loved their names too because he was a poet. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm making you... Um, um, go off on a tangent there. Sorry, we need to talk well, about I, I George. I just want to say before we before we leave these roses, there's a rose that I deeply regret ever having planted, which was a rambler. I think oh, it's a yes. mermaid. What a menace! There, they can they can just they can just take over the world. They, the ramblers. They've taken over the world, and I have torn my fingers on them so often. They are so dangerous. What was it called? Did you say? Sorry, I think it's a mermaid. Okay, well, be warned, listeners. Be warned, don't get a mermaid. Don't put it in your terrace. You'll yeah. never get your terrace back. Exactly. You can only plant one of those if you have huge grounds and you need to cover them at yeah. speed. I just didn't know. Yeah. It's a... <laughs> it was ignorance on my part. <laughs> um, so to go to go back to the book, you, you call it, you say that, and um, you said that Orwell was a rambler and, and that Rebecca Solnit is a bit of a rambler. You call it a series of meditations. It's a kind of, is it a meandering read? Is that a fair characterization? It's an extremely meandering read. And um, what is good about her, her style is that she admits this all the time. She sort of says she's going off in a different direction. Um, and sometimes the directions are quite surprising. But I, I, I think it was, it was a difficulty for her that she had to finish this book under lockdown because she's a natural walker and an outdoor person. Mm. And she was locked down and, and she never got to Jura, which was Orwell's final kind of garden, his garden out of London. And, and, and she would have so loved to have gone there, I felt. Um, so some, some of the ramblings never happened, but some of them were only tangentially uh, attached to Orwell and were absolutely fascinating too. I read a, a, a piece by her in which she said she she said graciously that she was very pleased with how the book had been reviewed. But a number of people, um, not you, of course, called it a collection of essays. And she says um, in this piece about it, she says, to me, that's like calling your family a collection of people or a tree, a collection of sticks. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have thought of that. But I can see it isn't a collection of essays because they are all deeply interconnected. And she's very keen on the idea of the rhizome mm. and the way we are now increasingly discovering that all trees are connected underground in a way that we didn't know about. I mean, we knew that fungus had these huge mycelium um, that stretched for hundreds of miles sometimes, but we didn't realize that trees were so interconnected underground. And her, her collection of meditations or whatever she would like to call it is, is always connected but sometimes rather surprisingly uh, a little shoot pops up somewhere where it shouldn't mm. um, and I one quite of the, like that yes yeah yeah one of the um one of the sort of the ways that she takes is she she looks into bread and roses doesn't she which seems 
Again, that seems a very Orwellian idea, not in the sort of popular, as you say, grumpy ideologue sense, but in the sense that you, you, people really need both of those things. They, they, they need art as well as, as food. Uh, yes, I, I thought that was, that was a very interesting chapter to me because I hadn't known the history of the phrase. And she's very good at etymology, and she digs back through etymologies and false etymologies to see when the phrase was first used, which I don't think she ever quite established. But, but the idea was certainly in Orwell's thinking that people needed, um, they needed art, they needed books, they needed the outdoors, they needed music, even cheap popular music, as well as just bread. Mm. And because it, it, it seemed to start with the, it was with feminists, feminist socialist organisations at the turn of the century. Is that right? Is that where it goes? Yeah, back yes, to? I think it was. I mean, it was. I can't quite remember because it is such an episodic story. She starts that section uh, with that very famous photograph of roses by a woman who did become a very strong radical feminist revolutionary. I've forgotten her name. Moment. Tina Modotti was it? That's right. That's absolutely right. And but she, but this image of roses, which is very, very famous and has been infinitely reproduced, and I think Madonna bought a version of it. It's a, it's a sort of female icon, but it's also a revolutionary icon linked through her life story, which ended in a, very abruptly. So, so she, what she does with, with bread and roses is take you in many different directions, and. Um, tells you little stories about the different directions it went in, which I found it very enjoyable. Mm. And then, um, to use the word again, Orwellian, again, not in its familiar sense, you say the best and most powerful chapter is actually quite Orwellian, about the business of rose growing in Colombia. This was, to me, the most um, interesting section, because um, she, she takes off to Bogota in Colombia, to look into commercial rose growing because she had a hunch, which I feel some of us, most of us must have had, that when you buy commercial bouquets, there's a history of exploitation behind it. And she goes to Bogota with somebody who's quite good at making his way into unionized uh, or non-unionized um, groups. Uh, and they explore what is actually happening to the workers. They're suffering from repetitive strain injury. They're not allowed to unionise. They have to wear these slogans saying how happy they are growing these roses. And that, to me, was um, it was the backdrop of um, those bouquets that we see at, at St Pancras Station every day, you know, where, where they, in fact, in the UK, they come from Africa, but in the US they come from Bogota. I just found that tracking back to the source really, really interesting. And it also raised this crucial question. When Orwell foresaw um, 1984 and totalitarianism, was he also thinking about commercial exploitation and the kind of algorithm world that we're in now? Or was he simply thinking about political exploitation and is political exploitation um, as bad as um, exploitation of our commercial instincts. I found that really interesting little questions raised by the rose-growing story. Mm. And, and the, I didn't realise that they, they have to wear the slogans. 
Yes, it was part of the workforce. Right, I see. So well, who had... would choose to put no. such rubbish on your chest? <laughs> That's um, a good point. I, 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 I did find that. And also that you're supposed to look all cheerful with your slogan. Um, and But... But Rebecca Solnit got behind the back of that um, to hear a few real genuine complaints. And I also, if I remember rightly, there was a good sounding um, charitable um, green um, body connected with um, this rose exploitation Mm. place that actually had... um, that was a bit of a sort of greenwasher or whitewasher because they hadn't really got to the bottom of what the workforce was actually doing. Uh, that, that, that's what I felt, that there was some kind of fudge going on about the workforce there, which was being treated badly. Well, that's another thing about the, the as you say, the exploitation in the whole sense that maybe he was looking into, but because that's also an exploitation of nature in the sense that we shouldn't have roses all year round should we i mean however repeat flowering they are we shouldn't have them in january or february we're so um we became so accustomed to expecting to have things all the year round but in fact roses do bloom amazingly late in the year sometimes mm. but now we have learned that that within sort of the last 10 20 years to connect this all the year roundness with um things being flown in and therefore air miles, therefore carbon. And we are making these connections far more than we used to. But it's very interesting that in, in all, Orwell's projection was of a, a world in which um, people had almost nothing. They, they, you know, they fought over a bar of chocolate. Mm. Whereas what has actually happened is a world of excess, and we're being ruined by excess rather than um, um, meanness and... Um, and division within a society, or by warfare. I mean, Orwell thought we were going to, that he projected a future in which the world was perpetually at war, which hasn't happened in quite the way he predicted. But what we have now is, is commercial, commercial exploitation, which has resulted in this huge disparity between the haves and the have-nots, which we know has increased since 2006 exponentially. Mm. And that, that, that his idea of double-think and double-speak is still there. Totally. In, still, in a very yeah. obvious way with the slogans on the front of the workers, but, but not always in the political way that he suggested. No, it, it is more... It, it's, reached a, it's reached a bigger plane, really, a sort of a, um, an everyday plane of... of, of um, of double speak about products, mm. and you say I find really interesting. I'm like I try not to be outwitted and try not to be brainwashed by products, but it it's very very hard to help it because some and occasionally sometimes it works and you get what you really needed um, and didn't know you needed it. But, but <laughs> yes. on the whole, it's selling you things you don't want. Yes, and you say as well, um, just at the, about that, the, the, the place in Bogota, the production line, the roses there, a lot of them are not, they're not very nice. They don't smell, <laughs> they don't look good. They've, is that right? Well, certainly she says um, that there are, well, they look good in a kind of artificial way. Mm. They look, um, they, they, I mean, I know there's a, there's a difficulty between the scentless rose and the scented rose and the old rose, mm. and that some of the new varieties are scentless and and a bread, and nobody seems to care about them being scentless. But she actually does say some of them are positively ugly. Um, 
and um, I, I, I'm not quite sure what she's summoning up with the word ugly, but it is true that sometimes these commercial bouquets do look um, offensively unreal. Mm. So Orwell would be doubly horrified, wouldn't he, by the possibly by the roses themselves and by the whole system that has produced he, he would the be roses themselves. By, by, the, by the system, and he would be. Um, he wouldn't think the roses looked real. And he, he really was quite a keen gardener, and I, I like the thought of him digging up his garden and shifting all that soil and making things grow in Jura. It's good. Mm, and proudly telling you that this one was from Woolworths and it was, you know, <laughs> cost two and six or whatever. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I, he very much wanted to be, um, although he'd been to Eton and was a product of empire, as we know, he really wanted to connect with um, what we might call ordinary people. Um, and when he went to Wigan Pier, I, I think Rebecca Solnit's bit about Wigan Pier and um, the Industrial Revolution is not terribly good um, because it's stuff we all know in this country too well. Mm. Um, but, but Orwell was, was so appalled by, by the spectacle of real working people and the lack of hygiene and the stuff they ate that he found it very hard to reconcile um, his mission to make the world better for everybody with the people who were actually living in this world and didn't necessarily want to live in a better world. And I, I, I feel that um, that Rebecca Solnit explores that contradiction in him. And to me, the idea that he is enjoying um, flowers from Woolworths means that he has joined the human race. He's part of common everyday pleasures. and. Um, and that obviously pleased her, and it also pleases me. <laughs> yes, well, that that's um, yeah, that's it's very pleasing for all of us. And thank you, thank you for helping us, for guiding us around the um, the meandering, the rhizomatic thinking, which is such a nice way of um, of thinking about the whole thing. It is a good meander. Yes, <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much for talking thank to you. us. Thank you. You open your piece um, with a question, which I'm actually just sort of going to put back to you. The question is, what accounts for the extraordinary importance birds have had throughout history in our lives, affections and imaginations? Can you give us some of the, the reasons as you see them? Yes, well, one of the reasons certainly is just that they're physically ubiquitous throughout the world. They're quite pervasive. Um, they span the globe from pole to pole. They're present in every um, realm of land, sea and air, and probably most people see or hear a bird every day of their lives. So physically, they're just with us the whole time. But also, and more importantly, probably, they form many different roles in our lives. Over history, we've hunted them, we've eaten them, we've adorned ourselves with their feathers, we've used their body parts for medicine, um, we've trained them for various kinds of sports and entertainment, We've made friends of them in our gardens. Um, we've got a whole range of different relationships with them. And I think one reason why we're so attracted to them is that they just have this gift of flight. I think that's terribly important. They have a kind of freedom that we aspire to. Um, and um, we're also attracted, of course, to their physical beauty and to their song. But I think flight is one of the most important things, along with the fact that when we watch birds, we think we know what they're up to. Um, we can see 
parallels between their social worlds and our social worlds. We see them eating, quarreling, mating, singing, conversing, attacking each other and so on. And we, we, we think we can enter into their society in some kind of way. So we do have a special sort of empathy with birds, I believe. all we have time for this week we hope you've enjoyed as much as we have listening to david wallace wells margaret drabble and jeremy minot thank you for listening to the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.